SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhez on SAFM. Not a good time generally in the world because of COVID. And another pandemic again seems to have resurfaced. And only this time I would imagine, if not hope altogether, some systemic interventions will come about. Collins Kosa was murdered in his home in the presence of his wife and family by law enforcement officers, South African National Defense Force in particular in this country. Across the Atlantic, a country that shares a very similar history to ours, only certain parts of their history happened a century or so before ours. But somebody who's a history student who understands these things knows that whatever happened in the U.S., has happened in South Africa, vice versa. And when we talk about Collins Kosa, America had to go. George Floyd, good evening to you, Miss Amponsag. Good evening. How are you, Songeza? I'm well, ma'am. How do you do? Well, thank you for having me. Mm. I'm going to talk to you as a Ghanaian woman who has got lived experience of the United States, Maryland in particular. You've been in South Africa. You understand, so to speak, the two countries, the two continents, and your work in racial dynamics can give us a sense exactly what is the world, the South African world and the American world, seized with right now. Well, I think what, what we're seeing right now is the reality of anti-black racism globally. You know, growing up in the U.S., and as you mentioned, being Ghanaian, and then coming to South Africa, you know, one of the things that I realized very on was that the narrative was very much the same on both sides of the Atlantic. And it was basically that black people were subordinate. And we saw that play out through enslavement. We saw that play out through colonialism. We saw it in the U.S. with civil rights. We saw it here in South Africa with apartheid. So while the details might be different, mm. the fundamental issue is about the lack of value of black life and how that's played out over the decades and centuries. Now, on that point, let's come to you, Jamal, Jamil, sorry to bring you into the conversation. Now that Obinawa has confirmed that the template is the same, it might play out differently in the granular details thereof. What makes it okay as a point of departure to even have a template of this kind where the experience of what we now refer to as African-Americans is very much similar to the experience of the people who are in the majority in this country. We refer to them as black people in South Africa. Why do societies ever get to a social compact or contract of that kind? Uh, good evening, Fungezo. Um Yeah, you know, so, so this is, I think... A lot of what we need to consider right now is also the way in which we use language, right? We find we find particularly in media also, people will um, will try everything to avoid calling things what they are. So we talk about racial tensions and we talk about um, you know racial disagreements and stuff. It's it's racism, and so the issue of systemic racism is what is built into the fabric of both these nations which were founded on the principles of white supremacy to this day. And what that is about is about ranking humanity. When you can rank humanity, you attach a value to a, to a particular life. And depending on what value you attach to that life, you can do certain things to the bodies in which those lives exist. And one of the biggest 
driving forces for um, both in the USA and South Africa. Um, one of the mechanisms of white supremacy is to create material and social inequality by bestowing unearned privileges on white people, which is called white privilege. And so what that does is it makes a fantasy of the systems that create race and racism. And by, so it does that by making things like racialized material wealth and unequal access to resources and social capital. It makes it seem like organic facts of life that is linked to capitalist principles of like hard work and um, you know work ethic. When in fact, it's actually an orchestrated um, system which allows all these resources to be reserved for white people. And black people know this, but are shut down when they speak about it. So that bolds a level of resentment and anger, which we see erupting now, and we have seen erupt throughout history. Mm. And this is an anger towards the way in which black people and their lives are disowned and dispossessed of humanity. I'm going to talk about the legitimacy of black anger in a moment. Let's let's play set it some for some more because I, I really do want to just sort of place set the conversation, understand the ground upon which we are engaging this debate. Obeno, I'm going to ask you speak to speak, please, on the thesis of the discriminatory Jim Crow laws, which the South African equivalent would be apartheid laws, introduced officially, certainly by D.F. Malan in the 1948 victory of the National Party. You can speak to that, Jamil. But when we talk about Jim Crow laws, the DNA of segregation and America's version of apartheid, what are we really talking about, Abenoa? Well, I think Jamil mentioned something very important when he spoke about material differences between uh, different racial groups. One of the things that we have to realize that is that what we consider to be, quote unquote, the norm, that racism is something that has sort of always existed, is not necessarily true. If you look back in history, if you look in antiquity, there were certainly relationships between Africans, Europeans, you know, probably called by different names around those times. But in order to have a system like enslavement, chattel slavery, you needed to be able to justify it somehow. And so racism, this thesis around the inferiority of black people, was brought into popular culture, through the media. It was brought in through religious organizations such as the church. And so it justified the economic exploitation. And so when you look at then the period of post-slavery reconstruction, you see that there was still a desire to control black people, to control black people's labor, right? So you need to have rules, you need to have laws, you need to have conditions that keep them from gaining equity, that keep them systemically inferior. And so with the Jim Crow laws, that was another manifestation of literally and figuratively keeping black people in their place. And I think for listeners who have not read it, there's an excellent book by Michelle Alexander. She's an African-American academic, and it's called The New Jim Crow. And basically, she traces the genesis of much of the police brutality we see today to Jim Crow laws, as well as enslavement, and the economic imperative to have some people, black people, be inferior and to have white people be superior. Now, on the basis of that, we do know that Jim Crow laws were essentially the confirmation of the American order. Yes, of course, in the 1860s, the Emancipation Proclamation that was signed into law, effectively abolishing slavery, Abraham Lincoln, that was his legacy. 
We do know that for all of his life, America has always had, so to speak, quote unquote, Jim Crow laws. In 1948, when we knew now this system that South Africa is governed through is apartheid, it wasn't starting then. It had always been that in form and effect. It was just now officially made apartheid. Just elaborate on that, Jamal, please. This evening before this interview, I was watching a random um, um, in, uh, speech by James Baldwin that he gave in 1979, and he referred to uh, the civil rights movement as another slave rebellion. Um, and it just, you know, it just made me think about how in a, in a place, for example, like the U.S., but also South Africa, where there has always been... Um, for as long as what what um, colonial powers have have manifested themselves in the country, um, in fact, the fact that it's called this, the fact that it's called South Africa is a, a, in and of itself a colonial construction. Um, but there has always been, um, from inception, the need to um, to create divisions and hierarchies um, within. So when we talk. In, in recent memory, a lot of people refer back to the past, and they think that past starts in 1948. Um, but this 1948 was a culmination of all the systems that had been put in place before then. We talk about um, 1652, when colonizers arrived, um, and in that initial, that first, interaction between indigenous people and colonizers, there was already the intention to dominate, to control, to disenfranchise, to dispossess and dislocate. Then in South Africa, we had our own system of chattel slavery that brought in slaves from um, East Africa, from Asia, um, and other parts of the world. And we also had a system of endangered labor that that, that um, uh, involved Indian people. So this system has been replicating and re-replicating itself throughout. The optics kept changing. The ways in which um, the documentation that recorded how the system should work, um, the way in which those things changed, um, came together in a way that allowed for a political system like we saw with a particular government ruling over people happened in 1948. But when we look at all of that and we look at where we are now, I think a lot of us are also starting to realize that nothing or very few things with regards to that system was actually changed and reformed when we look at the ways in which we are now policed, we look at the ways in which we now employ military force to still control people who, yes, by and large, remain impoverished and black. We'll talk about the brutality of the system because it was important in this the first segment, and we're going to take a break after what I have to say now. It was always important to get a context of the relationship between the state and its citizens, to get a context of the relationship between the citizens themselves divided across their color lines and how the state sponsored those divisions through the apartheid laws and the Jim Crow laws, Jim Crow in America, apartheid in South Africa, of course, and how fast forward we can still get in 2020, despite all the movements the world has seen and the metamorphosis of the world, Black Lives Matter is as important now as it has always been. 
the death of George Floyd, the death of Collins Cosa at the hands of the security apparatus of the state and what that tells us about the constructs of societies in America and in South Africa in this day and age. And in particular, something which for certainly for the listener at home should be something that pricks them, our response to what we see when our fellow citizens are brutally murdered as we have seen. And perhaps what we are seeing in America now, which is what we have not seen in South Africa in recent memories, not in Marikana, not with Collins Tatane, not now with Collins Kosa, Perhaps there's something missing among the South African citizenry in holding to account or in the context of activism that we really should see to try and root out at its most basic form what gives us the police brutality or the security spaces and being so comfortable in brutalizing the citizens. Ms. Obenawa Amponsa is the CEO of Amponsa and Associates. She's the former director of the Harvard Center for Africa, as well as the former CEO of the Steve Biko Foundation. Jamil Khan is a PhD critical diversity studies candidate at the University of the Witwatersrand. Together they return after the break. Your calls on this, and I want your voice in its crudest form, respecting, of course, the fact that this is public radio. Nothing conventional on the viewpoint. Call Songhez or now 0891-104-207. Just to wake me up a bit, a message from Anonymous. Good evening, Mabegle. I have been following your show with interest for some time now. However, I have picked up bad tendencies about you. I have noticed that you tend to judge and undermine the listeners who have different views from yours, whether it be via calls, SMS, and WhatsApp messengers. Please note that radio platform is for listeners to express their views freely, not to say things that please you. If you disagree with the listener, please do so in a decent manner without undermining their views, whether it be via calling or multimedia messages. Stop wanting to always sound intelligent and politically correct on radio and mine other people's views. I don't know who that person is. It's anonymous. I'll take the note and noted no more than that. Obenawa is back, as is Jamil. We're talking about systemic racism, an underlying pandemic when we have, in the names of Collins Kosa and George Floyd, national movements that could be taking place in South Africa and are taking place in the United States. The question is, how do citizens respond? Why are South Africans not responding to that? Perhaps we can get to the rub of this matter. South Africa, I'm talking to you. Why are we not taking to the streets? Why did we not take to the streets en masse when Marikana happened in 2012? Why did we not do that in bold day in broad daylight on our television screens rubber bullets being fired two three meters away andre stadani by a south african police services member and we simply went on with our days as though it were okay and we certainly do know that we can do it because what happened in september last year with the brutal rape and murder of we certainly found our voice i don't know if whether or not the momentum that we could have built by then is what we now have your thoughts calls comments please oh eight nine one one zero four two zero seven whatsapp voice notes oh six one four one zero four one zero seven voice notes you know the rules please keep it clear simple and to the point within a minute a slight bit of latitude is offered to our callers on the line and we will give you that Port Elizabeth, our first caller this evening. Good evening. Pugad. Yes, sir. I am well indeed, sir. Let me get down to it. If you allow me, I'm going to be a white person only for a minute. Mm-hmm. After I'm done, I will revert back to Monday. Um, this is um, reflected to about to address. I think it's Jamal. Jamil, yes. What is your guest? Jamil, yes. 
Bungane wanted to course in economics talked about utility and to understand it you've got to add to attach arbitrary numbers to the phenomenon that you want to investigate it's in grade 11 right mm. now i want to attach some utility values again it's arbitrary right remember Bungane in south africa um we had four boxes whether they like it or not apartheid white colored asian and black that being the lowest if i would attach a value of 10 to white a value of seven to colored five to asian and one to black right i'm doing this exercise to agree with what jamalo said right that it is a white supremacy nothing else right you can do this thing by race Bungani, or by religion both of them right are a tool to assume dominance over the other nothing else right because race Bungani, for example you'd agree with me there is no scientific exactitude mm-hmm. about this term in other words if you say you're white you certainly do not look like snow if you say you're black you certainly don't look like cold if you if you colored and so on right so it is a term that is used to ascend power nothing else dominance now quickly in america we've got floyd here with collins Corsa, and here we're still not over to maricana Bungani, once i'm done i hope jamal will come with possible solutions because i have none but lastly before i left south africa in 78 my name was supposed to be Subantum Nikina only. I was told by this um, officer who issued a passport that, sorry, you must have a Christian name. Mm. That is why I had Billy, which I detest. Mm. Bungani, your guests can offer some solutions as to is there a hope in the horizon that race relations can be resolved? Bungani, Good day to you. Uh, good evening to you, Babu Ngonde. I'm not going to call you, Billy. Beyond the horizon, beyond the now, what is in the offing? Offering some solutions, something for you to think about, Jamil Khan, after this call from Loise in Pretoria. Oh, hello? Yes, sir. Oh, how are you, sir? I'm well. How do you do? Yeah, no, I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I think I have a uh, different point of view from the majority of uh, black callers that we get on radio talk shows in South Africa, you know. Uh I'm one of the people who, for, for example, uh, I've realized that usually if uh, if a black man is uh, perhaps murdered or beaten up by one or more white people, it, it usually attracts more media attention, more protests than if a police officer who happens to be black or, yeah, if a police officer who happens to be black either murdered or, you know, some in, in some other way intentionally killed or unintentionally killed an unarmed black man such as Collins Cosa. Mm-hmm. Like in Marikana, for example, uh, Marikana is not, is not as commemorated as 1976, June 16. Whereas uh, in Marikana, if I'm not mistaken, the majority of the police officers that shot the black people, they were black. Mm. However, we still don't commemorate it as much as uh, June 16, where the majority of the police officers were possibly white who killed 
the black people. Yes. And it's the same thing, I think, in America. I don't think George Floyd is the only black person to have been killed by police officers. It just so happens that in this case, it was a white police officer. And what I've realized is that as black people, we, we tend to, uh, how can I put this? We tend to feel like our lives matter more or the death of a black person matters more if it is caused by an, a person of another race instead of us. And we as black people, if we are going to keep feeling like we need to be, uh, I can, where, where we need to be more, uh, we, we need to be more respected by other people, that will not happen by just begging, begging, begging for things. We have to make sure that we, as ourselves as black people, we are we achieve more, and to make sure that if we are, we respect to be respected even by black youth, because if if you're going to ask uh, a black person, a young black person, who their favorite business people are, the majority of them are not going to mention black people, because in South Africa, they associate black people with things things such as tenderpreneurship. And the the only ones yeah, that yeah, yeah. are the types of Mr. Richard Maponya because those people actually made money themselves. They don't associate those kind of people with the because those are people who actually make money themselves. People such as uh, Richard Maponya and others. No, I've but, got you. I've got you. I'm going to have to move on. Thanks so much, Lozzy. But I think for you, Abena, Abenawa, I beg your pardon. The the the, the point that Lozzy is making, and I'm trying to synthesize it, is the nuances now in this black-white discussion. A tear down, if you will, the black on black question. Do we talk about that? He mentions what I believe is a valuable point is we seem to be more outraged when the loss of life of a black person happens at the instance of a white person and less so when it happens at the instance of another fellow black South African. And I suppose the point that he addresses around Madagan and everything that has since happened in the democratic dispensation is treated very differently to what happened in the apartheid dispensation. Fair point, I think. Obenawa, that is for you to respond to, please. Let me take another two calls. Dadum Kwati in Nelspreit and Bongani in Russia. One after the other, please. Good evening, uh, Digela. Oh, that's the Bulela Dada. Oh, yeah, no, I've been listening to your show for quite a while now. I think uh, I'm quite impressed now by the kind of analysis that is being watched for the entertainment. Because uh, really, with the advent of uh, uh, the matter of Floyd in what's called uh, in America. It has really raised quite a number of questions with us. It seems with us here, in, in more especially here in South Africa, I will really be repeating the watch of what the previous scholar has said. Our lives as black people seem to be very, very much cheap, more especially when murder is caused by another murder, when murder is caused by the security forces. I can watch will count uh, numerous occasions where people have been killed, but nothing, nothing, nothing will watch all happens was quite outstanding now when uh, Floyd was killed in America, the kind of what's called anger and outrage, more especially here in South Africa among our fellow black South Africans. Look, for instance, for example, the mayhem in, in Zimbabwe. There. People are killed, kidnapped, and watched, watched, and done all kinds of what's called uh, mm. things. But uh, we are quiet. It seems as if there is nothing that is going on. Mm. We only wait until such thing is committed by a, a, a white person to show that a, a black life is what matters. I think we need to interrogate ourselves. Mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, Dada. And Gosabaw, thank you so much, and I appreciate your warm uh, remarks at the 
onset of what you had said. Black anger and the channeling of it. Dadungwati as well, that last caller is for you, Obenawa, to respond to, please. I think I'm getting a strong sense that there's a convenience in how Africans are angry or how black people are angry, certainly as it pertains to the South African context. Let's go to Bongani in Rustenburg. Uh, good evening, Tatu uh, Bongan. Yes, sir. Uh, I think the thing of this guy that have been, been killed in, in, in America, it's very painful. I am also, I mean, a, a victim, but thanks God, because I've never died. I've been beaten like 2012 by this guy, they call themselves Amabaret in Tembisa. I was still in, staying at home in Tembisa by that time, 2012. Those guys, they just, I mean, stopped my car. And after they stopped me, immediately I stopped. Uh, I put hazard. Uh, they just opened up my door. Immediately they beaten me like nobody's business. And after that, they threw me in uh, the back of their van. They took me to the police station in Raverish, where I found myself being beaten also inside there. And where the police, where, where, when I tried to, 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 to explain to them, I mean, to ask themselves, why are they beating me? It was like, this is how now I'm opening, I mean, a, 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 a way for them to beat me even more. So these kind of things, I think uh, we, we, I mean, really need to take action as a society because now people are getting killed. I mean, most, most of them, man, for, for, no, for no reason. Sure, sure. No, I've got you. you. Know? Thank you so, so much. Yeah. Calling us from Rustenburg, Ubongani, I think we're going to hold calls for a moment. We're going to give Jamil Khan, a PhD, Critical Diversity Studies candidate at University of the Witwatersrand, an opportunity to respond to the first caller in relation to solutions and specifically to the experience of Bongani in Rustenburg. First to you, Jamil. We'll come back to you, Ms. Amponza. Very, very difficult question <laughs> to be asked. Um, but I think, you know, I really think... There are different, you know, there are different stages and, and phases involved in, um, involved in, in I don't know, a, a sort of response, if you will, to societal issues. Um, and I think in South Africa, the reason why many of us have been a little bit, or at least the, the, the insinuation is that our, our responses are somewhat slow to, to the, the systemic um, violence that our own, uh, you know, government meets out to us, is that we are slightly in disbelief. You know, I think there's an interesting thing about South Africa, um, which is the process of political transition that we went through, which mm-hmm. America didn't go through. So um, there was somewhat of an interruption of power that was supposed to mean a reform system. But we now see that that was a ruse. So what we can deduce is that the systems of policing and militarization that drove the apartheid machinery have remained very much the same, but only changed in appearance, which is actually more dangerous. Um, so I think for us, we are actually coming to terms with the fact that we were duped. I don't think that, for example, in the United States, um, uh, black people um, saw um, or were promised a level of reform that we were. You know, the, the, the political structures remain very much white in the States, and so therefore um, it could be expected that that would continue. So in terms of solutions... Um, could I disagree with you on that? Because right. Abraham Lincoln does 
abolish slavery in the Emancipation Proclamation. There is a constitution that d- makes no difference on color lines. It speaks to people just much, just like our constitution draws much from the U.S. Constitution and the Canadian Constitution, the British common law system and parts of the Dutch Constitution. That is our constitution. And all these amendments, and I think specifically the 13th Amendment, speaks to how slavery in the true sense cannot be taking place. Is that or are those series of events not promises to the African African-American minority and Hispanics and all of those minority communities in the US, yes, in the USA, those are the promises I put to you. It's just that the implementation of hasn't really changed from what it always has been. And so characterized in the United States as this always society that continues to subjugate its minority communities. So I agree with you there. So maybe to rephrase what I'm, what I, what I, the point that I was getting at there was that, um, for, for black people in America, the faith that represented these changes were not their own. I accept that. Faces. Yes. And so in that, there was a level of, and there remains a level of skepticism um, about, those, about those systems that we might not have because the faces that represented those changes in our country were our own. Um, so, so that's what I was trying to get at. But I think... Mm. Um, in terms of, of, of the, the phases and the processes, I think we need to get past that that um, that skipped, oh, the lack of skepticism um, and realize that as much as what um, we had a system of racial oppression that was then um, you know sort of given a facelift and black faces were put in place. Um, to end the system, the system itself hadn't changed. And I think mm, we need to mm. start deeply, deeply interrogating the extent to which, even with our wonderful constitution, which has lauded the world over as one of the most amazing constitutions ever, that the mechanisms by which that constitution is implemented is still very much deeply linked to not only... Um, apartheid mechanisms, but also colonial mechanisms. And the, the entire system of governance is still founded on the principles um, of colonial and apartheid South Africa. So I think it's going to take a while, I think, but um, we, need, we need to wake up to the fact, we need to wake up to the fact that the changes that we thought we got were not at all, um, were not at all that. And once we come through that level of interrogation, we have to make a decision. And of course, there are things that I could say that might get me in trouble on radio, so I won't say them. But we have to make a decision about what we would like to do with that, those realizations and what, it, what that means for having a government mm-hmm. and what that means for having a future with or without such a government. Fantastic. I'll respect your reservation in wanting to be as frank as you could because you obviously have many competing interests that you have to look after. But I certainly do want to return to the point where we're talking about the principles of our governance, remain colonial and apartheid. I want you to elaborate further on that. I'm not disagreeing with you. In fact, I could well agree with you. Let's talk about black anger. Is it misdirected? Is it convenient for ourselves as a people, certainly in the South African context? You want to lend some weight to those thoughts, Ms. Abenoa Amponsa? Certainly, and thank you very much to the callers for their questions. I think it certainly gives us a lot to deliberate upon. So I think one thing, when we think about perhaps 
as you say, why people have not taken to the streets in the same way that they have in the U.S., I think it's important to recognize a couple of things. The first is that protest is not the only form of resistance, right? That there are many people across this country who are doing work grassroots level, they're educating, they're organizing, you know, they're taking care of people who need additional support. And all of those things are additional forms of activism that although they're not as visible as protests, they're equally as critical and they lay the groundwork for future uh, protest activity if necessary. I think the second big difference between the U.S. and and of South Africa is that when we look at the end of enslavement in the U.S., which was 1865, right, that was 135 years ago, if my math serves me correctly, whereas in South Africa, we're 25 years after the new dispensation, right? So people's expectations and people's patience certainly would be at a very different level and a very different stage. I think the other thing to point out is that in the U.S., in terms of the end of enslavement, you know, I've heard Abraham Lincoln uh, referenced a couple of times. Now, while technically he did put in place the Emancipation Proclamation, we have to realize it wasn't because there was a great sea change um, that people suddenly felt that, oh, my goodness, we've been so wrong. Black people are equal. It was a strategic decision in order to for the North to win the American Civil War, right? And when we're looking at what it takes to create sustainable change, typically we're looking at things at four different levels. Mm -hmm. And the first would be structural, which is laws, policies, procedures. Those things are much easier for us to deal with. So we tend to run to that, right? But there's also the cultural. What are the quote-unquote norms and values that a society abides by? And unless you have leadership that's really delving into that, it's hard to get the change that you want to get. And then the other two levels of change that we must look at is what happens on the personal level, so people's own biases and their own beliefs about themselves and other people, the extent to which those are and are not interrogated. And then, of course, interpersonally, how we engage with other people who are different than, our, than ourselves. And so I don't think that we've seen those four levels of change consistently in the U.S. or in a South Africa. And because the U.S. is so much further ahead, I think it is a cautionary tale to South Africa to say, keep having the conversations and keep doing the work, even though it's difficult at these four levels, because what we're seeing in the U.S. is very much a case of the cost of not having those conversations, the cost of not doing the work. And I want to point out that even though we're referencing South Africa and the U.S. quite a bit for obvious reasons, mm. that again, white supremacy and anti-black racism are global issues. If we look at Brazil, which has one of the world's largest uh, black populations outside of Africa, we see the oppression of Afro-Brazilians. We saw last year, the, or two years ago, I believe, the murder of Marais Franco, who was an Afro-Brazilian lawmaker. We see it in Europe. We see it in Asia, right? So I think we just need to keep in mind that it's part of a global conversation sure. that needs to be had. With that said, I, I think as well that part of the reason that we're seeing such an accelerated pace in the U.S. is that if you just look at the past few months, we saw Ahmaud Aubrey, who was a black man out jogging, killed by two white citizens who, until there was social media activism and organizing offline, those people were not arrested, even though there was video footage of it. We then very quickly saw that followed up with Breonna Taylor, a woman who I believe was in Louisville, Kentucky. She was at home asleep. The police raided her home looking for her, her boyfriend, and she was asleep and she was shot to death, right, by police officers who did not declare themselves and who were not in uniform. They thought it was a home invasion. And then, of course, we see this followed up in the case of George Floyd, where you have three grown men kneeling on someone for nine whole minutes as they die. And so I think all of those things in such quick succession, on top of the COVID virus, right, 
where disproportionately we have seen so many more black people die than anyone else was really something that I think fueled and catalyzed people to come out and demonstrate in the numbers that they have despite the risk of corona, uh, the coronavirus. I would also say, though, that I think one of the things we need to keep in mind in terms of the difference between South Africa and the U.S. is really the the demographic difference. Mm. In that South Africa, I believe it's 85% black when we take, you know, black in the collective uh, sense, right? Whereas the U.S. is closer to 90. Mm. Come again? It's closer to 90 when you sort of do the collective of non-white. Not that I subscribe to the term non-white. (laughs) <laughs> right. But so but it's much different. Whereas mm. in the U.S., it's the inverse, which is about 13 percent of the population that's black. So you wouldn't necessarily expect to see the same types of numbers that you would see here in South Africa in terms of people in leadership and that type of thing. I think the final point that I would like to make is that this issue is systemic. Right. Someone referenced or asked the question about black on black violence. And I'm not certain how it was intended, so I'll answer it in two ways. Mm -hmm. The first thing that people often do, particularly in the U.S., when they speak about police brutality and white people murdering black people generally, is, well, what about black-on-black violence? But what the data clearly shows us is that the majority of people in the U.S. are murdered by people of their same racial group. So whether you're Asian, whether you're Latino, whether you're white, right? And so this conversation about whether whether or not it's black-on-black violence actually often becomes a deterrent from dealing with the systemic issues, right? Mm. Now, with that said, we do need to be careful because even though as black people, we will not necessarily be the beneficiaries of white supremacy, unless we're conscious about dismantling it, we will be the ones who perpetuate it. As Steve Biko said, the greatest tool in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed, which is why you can have a Marikana where you see people shooting at people who look just like them. This is why, you know, with thieves must fall, when you see police officers shooting at people who literally could be their children, it's because the systemic beliefs have not been dismantled. And so we end up reenacting Whose responsibility? I, whose responsibility is it to dismantle those systemic structures that continue to pervade the society? And I'm asking because for the most part, this conversation has been 100% a conversation among the oppressed people, black people. I haven't had any white person contribute to this conversation. Is it because for whatever reason they have checked out of this conversation Is it a question of flooding? Therefore, we've had this discussion too many times, and a lot of them might not necessarily feel guilty because they are not the ones who necessarily have perpetuated it, but perhaps could yet be benefiting from it. Why do we not have a sense of the white communities owning this narrative? Why is it always owned by the oppressed or blacks? Well, I think because we're the ones who are getting shot and killed every day. Right. So that lends a little more urgency. But to be clear, racism is not a black people or people of color issue. Right. This is something that white people need to be equally engaged in. And I think that there are four key things that people must do. The first is to simply acknowledge. So typically what people will go is I do is they say, I don't see race. Right. So they just ignore. They elide. They don't want to deal with the issue at all. But the second thing people must do is really take the time to learn and not learn in a way where you put the onus on black people to dip into their trauma to come and teach you, but to learn in the way that just like you Google everything else, get online, read some books, look for some resources. And when you are better versed and you're, you're able to confront your own privilege, right, and the ways in which you've benefited from white supremacy, even if you didn't start the system, then to begin to engage in conversations and actions and to really understand what you can do around signing petitions, donating, but most importantly, in your place of business. Who works there? 
what is their rank? Are you paying people fairly? When you see a black colleague being denigrated in a meeting, do you speak up on that person's behalf or do you sit quietly? Do you tell racist jokes at, at the bride or do you say, actually, that's not okay? So it is each and every person's responsibility to understand and address racism wherever they see it. Mm, for sure. I want to finalize the conversation. Thanks so much, Ms. Amponsa, for the Jamil. Let's finalize the conversation right now. Let's talk about the principles of governance. What in our constitutional dispensation, and I'll give you a minute, please. What about this constitutional dispensation is clearly giving us more of the same that we need to attend to as a matter of urgency? So, so I don't. Th- I think that the issue is, you know, I also think about the print, just everyday principles of our South African uh, society is structured, um, and that is the fact that white culture or or white supremacy, white supremacist principles, um, be- actually becomes actually just everyday. So things like Africanness and and and, and blackness are exceptionalized and othered as something that one can point to. But the ways in which we interact every day, which is considered politeness, which is considered decorum, which is considered professional, which is considered um, presidential, those things are actually informed by the principles of, of the ways in which white societies have been constructed. And I don't think we understand just how much we have internalized that to be a norm. So again, I am not um, quite sure what the solution is to that but I do think there is definitely a need to invest more deeply sure. in the ways in which we've internalized the society that we exist in. I'm going to ask you to hold it right there and say thanks to the two of you it has certainly been great. Let's take a break.